Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am, with indefatigable commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and humble host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Uh, if, dear friend and listener and viewer, you find the content on this channel enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel, on which, as you probably know, looking through the archives, I host an array of interesting and fascinating thinkers. Uh, if you're looking for content specific to wellness, meditation, sleep aid, um, philosophy and poetry, you can, of course, visit my sister project, Numa by Daniel Finneran, on which you'll find a lot of content related to that. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. Today, my friends, I have the immense and frankly, I think, undeserved honor of talking with the great Professor Naomi Oreskes, a public intellectual in the truest sense from whom I've already learned a great deal. I hope to drink more deeply from her bottomless well of knowledge today and pass along that cup to you. First, though, a little biographical information about our good professor. Professor Oreskes is the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at America's most prestigious institution of higher learning, Harvard University. Prior to her arrival at Harvard in 2013, Naomi spent 15 years at the University of California, San Diego, to whose balmy climb she bade, I'm sure, a difficult farewell as she moved on to the chilly winters of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a fellow of numerous renowned societies and organizations and associations. Naomi was awarded with a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2018 and the British Academy Medal in 2019. She is the author of many highly celebrated books, including Why Trust Science, The Collapse of Western Civilization, The Big Myth, and perhaps most famously, Merchants of Doubt, a chart-topping book upon which a compelling documentary of the same name was based. Uh, Naomi, thank you so very much for agreeing to join me today. Uh, you're welcome. It's, a, it's my pleasure. Now, before we begin in earnest, I request that you not squint and look too closely at the bookshelf behind me. Oh, I was doing exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is adorned by some of the authors whom you roughly, but I think fairly treat in your latest book, The Big Myth. So just avoid, <laughs> avoid looking at any of the names that might, that might uh, slip into your view in the rear. Um, but as stated, the title of your latest book is The Big Myth. Now, its subtitle, I think, gives us a foretaste of what that myth is, but perhaps you can tell us of what myth must we all be disabused? It's the myth that I like to call the magic of the marketplace, or we can just think of it as the myth of the free market. So it's the, it's the idea that there is such a thing as the free market that exists unto itself as if it's somehow given in nature, that it has wisdom, that it has agency, and that we should trust the wisdom of the marketplace and that all will go well in our lives and our societies if we trust the magic of the marketplace. And also, therefore, and this is key to the argument in our story, that we don't need government, that government action in the marketplace, what they like to call government interference, uh, distorts markets, gets in the way, 
and therefore um, it's tied to an anti-government ideology. So the myth is sort of a positive myth about the power of markets, and it's also a negative myth about the um, damage that governments do. And this myth doesn't arise ex nihilo. It doesn't just come into being. You lay out uh, sort of a, an evolution of sorts from Mises and Hayek and Friedman and all these people who contributed to what we now have received as a, as a certain myth. Can you maybe just give us a, like a bullet point of these luminary figures who still shine very, very brightly in conservative and libertarian circles and kind of explain how they, um, and of course, Adam Smith, and, and maybe how they, they took their learning from one another and created what we have now today with this myth. Oh, excuse me. Thank you. Uh, so Eric Conway and I are both historians of science, and we came to this project through our backgrounds in science. And so some people have even been asking us, so why would a historian of science end up writing a book which seems to be about mostly economics? And so our argument is twofold. First of all, the book isn't about economics. It's about disinformation. It's about how myths get propagated and sustained in popular culture, but also in academic life. Um, and why this particular myth has come to have such a powerful hold in American culture. So it's really a history of disinformation. And so that's part of what links it to our previous work in history of science, and particularly to our work in Merchants of Doubt. So like all good myths, it has a kernel of truth and it comes out of a set of legitimate questions. The key legitimate question being, what is the proper relationship between a people, a, their government, and the economic systems that we need to generate the goods and services that we want to have in our lives. So these are questions that economists, political philosophers, ethicists, moralists um, have thought about for a long, long time, going back to Plato. And they're really important questions. They're crucial. So we do not criticize von Mises, Hayek, Milton Friedman, any of the people we talk about in the book for addressing the question. We agree these are really important questions. What we do criticize is the construction of this framework really as if it were a scientific theory, as if it were supported by the facts of history, as if it were supported by the facts of economics. And what we show is that it's not. We show that it's really an ideological framework, that it was promoted uh, in some cases, I would say in good faith, but in other cases, really in bad faith, in order to prevent government protections of consumers, workers, and the environment. And so what we do in the books is to track this story from the early 20th century, beginning again, as I said, with a set of legitimate questions about minimum wage and child labor and protection of workplace safety. You know, how much should the government be involved in these kinds of issues and how much should we trust businesses to run their own businesses, you know, as they see fit. And in the early 20th century, many people, particularly here in America, were saying, well, you can't just leave it to the business people because if you do, what you end up with is children as young as two years old working in textile mills and many, many children between the ages of say six and 12 working in factories, mines, uh, textile mills, uh, you know, widespread exploitation of children in factories in the United States and elsewhere, and also massive workplace injuries so bad that it actually had a name in the early 20th century. It was called the accident crisis. The equivalent of millions of people uh, being killed or in severely injured on the job. And so in response to this in the United States, many people, people who became to be known as progressives, including progressive Republicans, began to argue for a greater role of the state, particularly the federal government, 
but also state governments, but a lot of the debate really centers around the federal government, a more active role for the federal government in making these kinds of decisions and choices. The issue becomes strengthened and amplified when the Great Depression hits, because then the question becomes even bigger. It's not just a question of whether the government needs to be involved to protect workers, um, to protect children, uh, to protect the natural environment against pollution, which is also an emerging issue at this time, but even to protect the economy itself, even to protect capitalism from rap rapacious monopolists, in a sense to protect capitalism from itself. And so that begins to be the mainstream view, and we see that in the United States with the election of uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the implementation of the New Deal. And that really becomes the majority viewpoint of Americans from the 1930s onward, that the government needs to be strongly involved in the marketplace uh, for a variety of reasons, to protect against bank failure, for example. So, but against that, there's an alternative view. And that alternative view is tied to the rise of Soviet communism. And so a set of important questions get a bit conflated, where a group of thinkers, particularly in Europe, particularly focused around what's known as the Austrian School of Economics begins to make a strong argument against government engagement in the marketplace. And it's based on what is going on in the Soviet Union and the way the Soviet Union has taken over not just the economy, but the lives of the Soviet people, the Russian people. And the argument is that if the government becomes overly involved in the economic system, then you're on a slippery slope to totalitarianism, to dictatorship. Now, like all good myths and arguments, there's a kernel of truth in this, it was certainly a legitimate question to ask, well, you know, does Soviet-style totalitarianism, you know, Soviet-style communism necessarily lead to totalitarianism? That was a legitimate question. And also, well, what about the middle ground? Very few Euro Western European countries were seriously um, flirting with communism, but many of them had active communist parties. Many of them had strong socialist movements, particularly in the United Kingdom, you saw the rise of social welfare programs, including things like the National Health Service. So there was a legitimate question about the balance. How far do you want the government to go to protect people from harms? How far do you want the government to go to try to manage the economy? And so a big debate breaks out in Europe about this issue. And I would say on many levels, it's a legitimate debate. But uh, a couple of things begin to happen. First of all, it becomes oversimplified so that you have people like Friedrich von Hayek, who you mentioned, who's uh, the protege of Ludwig von Mises, who's considered one of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics. In hindsight, many people would say these are the founders of neoliberalism. He begins to argue that any government engagement in the marketplace, including the national health system in Britain, puts you on the slippery slope to totalitarianism. And therefore, even programs that seem on the surface to be good, like national health insurance or laws against child labor, are actually bad. That argument gets picked up in the United States by a group of industrialists who are not academics, they're not economists, they're not deep thinkers. They're actually, I would say, extremely shallow and superficial thinkers, but who see how they can use this argument to their own personal advantage. And that's the story that then we track through the second and third thirds of the books, how those arguments were then used in America to build a myth about how great the market is and how bad government is, and really to turn the American people against our own government. And you and your co-author do an admirable job of highlighting the, um, there's a fallacy to which you give a name. I can't quite recall it right now, 
but this idea that it's all or nothing, right? It, it, there is no sort of a mixed economy um, that is eventually adopted by many European states and America as well. Uh, but it becomes this, this um, stridently ideological battle between those of the Austrian school supporting that and totalitarian communism. And one can understand, I suppose, when the threat was so grave in the, in the post-World War II era, why it, it became that way. But um, it, it certainly led to, like you said, uh, superficial and I think weak thinking, uh, especially as it pertains to the industrialists of the of the twentieth century. Yeah, and and let's say honestly, dishonesty, right? Because part sure. of what we show in the book is that some of the people in the story believe these views authentically, but others take it and actually dishonestly promote it. So one of the things we talk about in the book, and the fallacy, by the way, it's called the fallacy of the excluded middle. That's it's a very yeah, good yeah. example. Drop at cocktail parties or in a graduate seminar or wherever you might have to be, say, oh, that's the fallacy of the excluded middle. And then everyone will turn around and listen to what you have to say. <laughs> but also because sometimes we have to put a name on something really helps us see it more clearly. So because honestly, you see politicians doing this all the time, right? I mean, Nikki Haley did it last night in the Republican debate when asked about climate, she says, oh, but you know, there's no point us doing anything if India and China don't do something. I mean, that's also whataboutism, but it's also the fallacy of the excluded middle that's all or nothing. Yeah. So we see that rhetorical strategy being used throughout in this story. Um, and of course, it's not true. It wasn't even true then, but it's certainly not true today, where we have more than 100 years of history now to show us how the European social democracies did, in fact, track a middle ground of a market, a system that's essentially a market-based system that is fundamentally based in what is mostly, you know, let's say relatively free market economics, but with significant regulations to protect workers, to protect the environments, and a strong social safety net to protect people um, from market failure and from what well, to provide services that markets don't provide well on their own. And healthcare, of course, is the most obvious important example. We've seen clearly in this country that when you leave healthcare to the private sector, you end up with a lot of problems, giant health inequalities, uh, giant cost overruns. Americans spend far more on healthcare than Europeans do, and we get worse outcomes overall. Um, so it's we know it's not true. We know it's wrong. But it's not just that we can say it's wrong now in hindsight. We knew it was wrong even in the 1930s, because even then we already had evidence for the ways in which it wasn't true. And so one of the points we make in the book, and this is where we speak as historians of science, if these people were actually thinking scientifically, if they were being honest, they would look at this evidence and they would revise their views in light of evidence. That's the core of scientific thinking, but that's not what happens here. And that's what enables us to identify this as ideology that's in some cases masking as economic theory or masquerading as economic theory. I hope you don't object to my deviating down the path of flattery, but I, I want to make- I'm offended if you flatter me. <laughs> But I, I just have to remark on how nimble you seem to be. I was reviewing all of your published works, and you begin with, with plate tectonics and, uh, you know, addressing, and I think that was your area of study at university. And like you said, you, you are an historian of science, and yet you're able in this book specifically, yes, to talk about science, but also to interweave political concerns and, and economic matters as well. Can you tell me a little bit, maybe on a personal level, how you were able to develop all these 
all these thoughts, how they were able to be synthesized in your brain, or, or maybe you've always had a passion for these three fields or so, and you've now found the outlet to be able to articulate them and express them. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, and uh, you can flatter me as much as you like. That's fine. <laughs> you're in the right. You're, in, you're on the right show. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I get, you know, I get all kinds of criticism from the people I'm criticizing. So you know, it's nice to be loved, right? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I think of a couple of things. I, I've always been a person who was interested in science, who was good in science, who was good in math, and so from a young age, I got channeled into math and science. Particularly being my generation, I, I am what I considered myself to be part of the Sputnik generation. I was born in 1958, the International Geophysical Year. And there was a lot of pressure on us as children. I mean, other people I know who went into science who are similar age of me had the same experience that if you could do science, you were pretty much told that you should do science. And I can remember teachers at one point in high school when I said I was thinking about majoring in French in college, a teacher saying, oh, that would be a complete waste, which is really a sad thing in hindsight, but that is, in fact, how a lot of people thought of things in those days. And also, growing up when I did with the burgeoning feminist movement, a girl who was good in science, there was a lot of positive support. I mean, there was some negative stuff, too. But there was a lot of public um, positive social reinforcement for the idea of being a woman in science that, that almost like that the world needed me to be a scientist. So I pursued science, even though I always had a lot of other interests. And I always experienced that as a bit of a problem. Um, that the world told you that you needed to either do science or the humanities um, and that they were really separate realms. The two cultures was a phrase that was used all the time in those days. And so I thought that I had to just um, be a scientist and I would read books on the side. <laughs> and that's what I did for a long time. That's what I did in college. That's what I did when I worked as a professional scientist. But in graduate school, I had the good fortune to meet a historian of science. And this was a field I didn't even know existed because it's not something that most people get exposed to in high school. And so when I realized it was a field that looked at science and social context and that tried to think about knowledge, not as an abstract ideal, not as some transcendental thing that people did in locked away in ivory towers, but as something that was part of society that influenced society and was influenced by society, that opened up this universe of intellectual and political thought. And so since then, I've simply been following the questions where they lead me. And so I didn't make a conscious decision that I you know, wanted to explore the world of free market economics, but really the work led to that. And let me explain what I mean. So as you said in the introduction, I'm probably most known for my book with Eric Conway, Merchants of Doubt, which was published in 2010. Um, and in that book, we looked at the phenomenon of climate change denial. And we wanted to know why would any intelligent person reject the hard-won evidence that scientists have worked so hard to try to you know, answer these questions and understand the climate system. And especially because we really need this information because if it's true, scientists are right, and we ignore it, well, we ignore that at our peril. And boy, I mean, this last few weeks with the fires in Hawaii, the incredible heat waves we've seen in the American Southwest, the hurricane that just hit San Diego, I mean, Climate change is happening in spades, and anyone who thinks they're immune, I think, has, you know, this should have been a wake-up call for people these last few months because we're seeing these effects everywhere. We're seeing that no place is safe, and even place people have moved to thinking they were safe, like Vermont, um, 
I mean, I read an article where someone said, yeah, we moved to Vermont from New York because we thought we'd be safe, you know, <laughs> right? So no, no place is safe because it's global warming. It affects the whole globe. So why would intelligent people not want to understand that and, and do things to protect themselves, take reasonable steps? Well, the answer we found when we wrote that book was all about market fundamentalism. It was all about believing in this myth that we just leave things to the markets to sort out and it will all be fine. And if the government gets involved, it'll just make the problem worse. And the climate change deniers that we studied said that in their own words. And so the book ended with that answer to the question. This is why they did it. It wasn't because there was some problem with the science. It wasn't because the science was too uncertain. It was because they were locked into this ideological framework that made them reject evidence, that made them very susceptible to what cognitive scientists call motivator reasoning. But like all good books, you answer one question, it leaves you with a set of others. And the obvious other question at the end of that book was, okay, but why did they believe in market fundamentalism? I mean, these are intelligent people. These people are not stupid. I mean, one of the people we wrote about was a president of the US National Academy of Sciences. So there was no plausible explanation that they were just dumb or that they didn't understand the science. And there wasn't really a plausible explanation that was really about money. Well, I should rephrase that. It could have been about money. And I think money was certainly part of the story. But when we read their letters to each other, they didn't say things like, well, this is a great gig. You know, I just flew on a private plane to the Bermuda with the CEO of Philip Morris, which one of these guys actually did do. So that's why I'm good. I mean, there was money, money and prestige was part of it. Um, attention was part of it, like getting the attention of all these people who wine them and dine them. But it was clear there was this strong ideological component. And the more we looked at what they said to each other in private, because this is one of the things that historians do, we know people lie in public. We know people say things in public that they think that they should hear or they think their audiences want to hear. And this is why historians spend so much time going to archives and diving into the, you know, the inner lives of the people we study. Um, when they talked about it in private, this is what they talked about. And we could see that it was related to their work in the Cold War and to this deep anti-communist ideology that you mentioned earlier. And so we wanted to better understand where did that ideology come from and why would not just the people we looked at in this particular book, Merchants of Doubt, but so many Americans, because public opinion polls show um, that about mm, 20 or 30 percent of Americans, even today, still don't believe climate change is real or don't believe it's caused by people. And those people are almost all conservatives. Yeah. self-identified conservatives. So it's linked to political ideology and it was that linkage we wanted to understand. I want to pick up on that just for a moment. You mentioned public opinion polls and I would like to return to, to global warming and climate change after that. But just recently, Pew Research released uh, its ongoing poll looking at public trust in government. And it declared, and the, the graph is striking um, with which it's associated, is that public trust in government is at near historic lows. Um, it shows that about 80% of Americans trusted the government back in the early 1960s, the 60s, uh, you know, right about the time that you were <laughs> starting to read your, your French literature is when it began to precipitously decline. And it's, you know, it's, it's varied a little bit, fluctuated a little bit, vacillated, but has continued that downward path ever since. And today, you mentioned the 20% who, who perhaps are dubious of climate change or outright in denial of it. About 20% of people today, of Americans today, trust the government. Uh, so I guess my question was, after having read both of your books and then considered this 
this figure. Uh, my question to you is, to what do you attribute this precipitous drop in trust? We've mentioned very briefly disinformation. We've mentioned the fact that these myth mongers are, are doing quite an, a good job at promulgating their ideas. Um, but perhaps maybe some of the responsibility lies with our government. Maybe it's not doing a very good job of, of earning the public's trust or at least recovering that which it lost. So what do you think about that? Well, sure. And I think any historian would always say that any complex social phenomenon isn't going to have just one cause. And one of the things that's hard about writing books is that if you want to write a book, you generally have to pick on some part of the problem to write about because, I mean, this book is 500 pages long just looking at one aspect of this problem. And if, you know, one time when we were writing Merchants of Data and someone asked me if I was going to also write about radon and asbestos, and I said, do you want a book or do you want an encyclopedia? So, you know, there's always this challenge of, of what you're going to focus on. So in our book, we focused on a particular set of activities because they were relevant to our concerns about climate change and they were relevant to our interest and our knowledge base about questions of information and disinformation, um, legitimate science versus propaganda. So what I would say we show in the book is that this decline in trust in government is not an accident. Um, now, the Pew, the Pew, I'm glad you cited the Pew polls because I love those folks. I think they do some of the best public opinion polling we have in the United States and they address important questions and they do it well. So we know from their research and other people as well that there's been a steady decline in trust in a variety of institutions since the 1960s, including uh, science, including the media, including religion. So this is a broad cultural trend. And so it means there's some really big causes that are probably beyond the scope of any one historian to explain. But one of the things we certainly know for sure, oh, and one interesting fact that I've written about in other contexts is that actually trust in science has declined less than trust in other things. So even though a lot of scientists bemoan the fact that they feel the public doesn't love them as much as they should, the reality is they love scientists more than they love business people or government leaders. So we know that that's true, but it is true that there has been a very great decline in trust, particularly in Congress, and so I think, yes, absolutely. I think that Congress has done things that um, have merited some degree of distrust. Certainly many historians will point to Watergate and the lasting impact of that on America's view of the federal government. And also many people of my generation would point to the Vietnam War and the fact that we know that the government, both Democrats and Republicans, Democrats under President Johnson, Republicans under President Nixon, and particularly uh, Johnson's Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, we know that they lied to the American people and they lied outright about the progress of the war, saying it was going well when in fact they knew it was not. So, so there's certainly plenty of blame to go around. Um, and I'm not at all unmindful about some of these other historical factors. But as a historian of science, rather than a political scientist, I've focused on some of the ideological components, the components that have to do with our big theories. And so what we show in the book is that since about the 1960s, there's been this steady drumbeat from conservative think tanks, conservative universities, conservative academics, pushing this idea that the government is not to be trusted, that we should distrust the government. And it sort of reaches a kind of crescendo in American life with the election of Ronald Reagan, who runs for office declaring that government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And he runs on an anti-government ideology, an anti-government agenda. And that gets picked up 
and becomes mainstream in the Republican Party. So obviously, I think Democrats have a lot to answer for, too. In the book, we're pretty critical of Bill Clinton. Um, there's a very, very strong critique of some of his economic policies. But um, it really became the framework of the Republican Party, particularly with Newt Gingrich and his so-called contract with America. And so what we've seen, and we saw it in the debates last night, and we've seen it consistently um, from Republican leadership really since... Well, I'd say it begins with Reagan, but it really takes hold in the 1990s, that the Republican Party has consistently run on an anti-government platform. Now, you might think that voters would say, well, that's kind of weird. If you don't believe in government, why are you running for government? But their argument is, well, we're going to take it apart from the inside. We're going to starve the beast. We're going to cut taxes. And of course, they have, to a great extent, done that. And so then you get yourself into a bad feedback loop where because government is underfunded, because social services are underfunded, they don't actually work very well. And so people say, oh, look, government doesn't work. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we've seen that particularly also, to me, one of the most telling things of recent years, well, two really, I'd like to talk about, the IRS and social security. So Congress passed or tried to pass a bill to increase funding for the IRS. And they were able to show, Congressional Budget Office showed that this would actually save the American taxpayer money because with better enforcement, the IRS could actually get taxes, collect taxes that it was owed, um, and therefore, you know, we 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 wouldn't be cheated by tax cheats. And Republicans wouldn't vote for it. They wouldn't support it, even though it made complete rational economic sense. Why? Well, people, everyone hates the IRS, right? You can't find a person on this planet who likes the IRS. So it's a very great government agency to hate. And nobody likes paying taxes, not even liberals. So, well, I take it back. My mother liked paying taxes. She used to always say, it's a happy problem. I'm happy that I'm wealthy enough to pay my taxes. Oh, my wow. God. She rescues. My mother was an angel. What can I say? But she's like the exception that proves the rule. Nobody likes paying taxes. So if the IRS is nasty, if you can't get through on the phone when you have a problem, it just makes you hate them even more. You have to pay them money and they're jerks, right? So this reinforces the idea that government is bad. And then the other example is social security. So we, and we talk about this in the book and I've written some recent pieces that pick up on this. Um, we've seen really since the 1980s, this consistent drumbeat of Republicans claiming that social security doesn't work, claiming that the system is broken. And in many cases claiming that because it's broken, it has to be privatized. And we saw this just this past year. Um, now the fact is it's not true. The fact is that Social Security is one of the most successful government programs in the history of the United States of America, and it's massively supported. Polls show that 70 to 80% of Americans like Social Security. They want it to continue, but they worry that it won't because they've heard so many times that the system doesn't work or that it's broken. So why do they worry? Well, they worry because this is what they keep getting told. So why would Republicans attack a program that works well that has achieved its goals and that pays for itself through the social security payroll tax. I mean, the system has been set up that revenues are collected to pay out the benefits. Now, obviously it needs adjustment from time to time in the book we talk about that, but it's one thing to say, okay, a 50 year old system needs some adjustment. You know, my old car, I have a 40 year old car, you know, I take it to the shop once a year, right? I've got old knees, I may need knee surgery, right? I mean, all old systems need maintenance, right? That shouldn't come as a shock. But that's not what we hear from Republicans. We don't hear, oh, the system needs maintenance. We hear it's broken and needs to be privatized. Why? Because they don't want it to work. 
because it refutes their ideology because social security shows that a big government program can work, it can work well, and it can protect people from market failure. And that's, the, that's an observation that they don't want people to make. And so instead they push this ideology that government doesn't work. And when they have a program that refutes that ideology, honestly, they lie about it. I'd be curious to know the, the demographic breakdown of the support of, of social security. Uh, mm. I would imagine that it, it garners high levels of support among those who are either its beneficiaries or impending beneficiaries. My concern, and this is a, a different topic into which yeah. we don't need to delve, but yeah. my concern chiefly is the demographic issue. Of course. Rates, with birth right. rates being as low and as de declining as they seem to be. In that instance, there might, the numbers might might be tough to, to work out exactly. But again, yeah, no, no, let me answer that. It's an important question. Yeah. And you're right. And and we I don't know exactly what the polls show about support, but I knew I do know the polls definitely show that younger people like yourself are more worried, and rightly so, because the demographic issues do raise potential challenges for the system going forward. But these are challenges that we see and we can address. And lots of people, and I wrote a recent piece about this in, social, in uh, Scientific American that got a lot of letters and some of them raised exactly this. And so actually we're publishing some of the letters. I think they're coming out in either September, or October, Scientific American. So if people are interested, they can follow up. But there are lots of studies that show that um, you're absolutely right. Young people do have reason to be concerned, but it can be fixed with relatively modest adjustments. And I think one of the problems that happens here is it has to do with the scale of big systems, that when you take a big system like so Social Security and you project outward, small shortfalls in money can look like giant amounts of money when projected, say, out 10, 20, 30 years. Um, I mean, this is, I've written about this in, in terms of modeling and physical systems, right? Small errors can compound. It's like the power of compounding interest. There's also compounding debt, but it can be fixed. And so one of the ways it could be fixed, for example, is simply by raising the minimum retirement age. And that's already been done a couple of times. Most people think of the social security retirement age as 65, but actually for me, it's 66 and two thirds. Um, and that, in my opinion, would be a reasonable thing to do since people are living longer you know, at the time, social security. Don't tell the was, French population that. Well, <laughs> I know, I know. And I think the French have they, some other I, What do you think? I think they're being a little unreasonable, but hey, that's just. I agree. And, and you could make an argument that if somebody has a very physically demanding job, that maybe it's not realistic to think that they could work to 70. And then it gets you into some tricky territory of, well, how do we decide? Should we have some classes of workers who get to retire earlier than others? So it's not trivial, but the point is, if you increase the retirement age by just a year or two, most of the shortfall that you're talking about can be fixed. And so that's my point. It's not to say that there aren't issues that need to be addressed, but that a rational assessment of the facts doesn't lead you to conclude that we should scrap social security. It leads you to conclude that in a world where people live longer, maybe a slightly higher retirement age, age is a reasonable adjustment. So a little fine tuning, you, get, you bring those knees to your orthopedic doctor, <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe it's well, maybe it's more than fine tuning. Maybe it's medium tuning. But yeah, <laughs> just a little bit of work, you know, scrape out a little cartilage. Yeah. Exactly. No. Um, I do want to comment before I forget it, and I wrote it down uh, just in regard to the, your scientists who are, who's, um, who who are no longer quite as as loved by the by the general population. I think that's 
small solace uh, in being the, the least despised <laughs> of all. <laughs> the least distrusted. <laughs> the least distrusted and despised among all of our uh, right. you know, esteemed institutions. Well, but it's better, it's better than that. Those same Pew data show that 70 to 80% of Americans believe that science is a net good. They believe that government should support science. And they also believe that science, um, the, the link between science and technology is strong. That about the same number of people who support science also think that technology is a net good, but they do think that um, technology is changing too quickly and that ordinary people don't have enough say in how changes in technology affect our lives. And I totally agree with that. I mean, when I read those polls, I thought, wow, the American people are really smart. You know, this is very reassuring, actually, because I think they're right. I think one of the problems we have in our society is that we don't have mechanisms for having good conversations about, you know, something like regulating AI, which is much in the news of late. And a lot of scientists do say what I consider to be foolish or um, condescending things about, you know, well, ordinary people can't understand this. No, ordinary people can't understand it, but you have to make an effort to explain it. Right, right. And which brings us to the point of your books, you know, really comprehensively putting forth this information, disseminating it in a, in a very accessible way. Um, so again, we thank you for that. Uh, now we are coming up toward the end of our time allotment, but I was unable to, to squeeze in a climate related question. Do you mind if I just squeeze in one? Okay. So not, not at all. Go ahead. We'll do one question related to the climate and yes. then I will copiously give you thanks again and we'll, we'll come to our conclusion. Um, so at the end of 2022, about 81% of our energy was produced by fossil fuels. A decade ago, that number was roughly 82%. Now, during the intervening years, an estimated $4 trillion, roughly $4 trillion, were invested in alternative, uh, alternative energy sources. These investments are mostly made by our government, of course, you know, to which we pay our taxes, and your mother gladly does. <laughs> so looking at these figures and that small percentage change in our reliance on fossil fuels, wouldn't you expect after that passage of time for that number to be a little bit different? And, and why do you think that it isn't at this point? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not sure which statistics you're referring to, and we would probably have to have another half hour to go into that. But one of the things that we do know is that um, for every dollar that the U.S. government has invested in renewables, there's been about $10 invested in fossil fuels. And there's also a very, very long history of support for fossil fuels through infrastructure development, through things like the um, oil depletion allowance, all kinds of tax incentives for exploration development. I used to be an exploration geologist, so this is something I know a lot about. Um, so... Fossil fuels have had a, a huge running start. They've had 100 years of government support, even if you think about all the roads that we built during the interstate highway system that supported an infrastructure based on fossil fuels. And we're just only now starting to have an infrastructure to support electric cars. And infrastructure is a really important part of this problem because even if I want to buy an electric car and even if I can afford it and I'm willing to you know, do the upfront investment, if there's no charging network and I can't get where I want to go, then it's not really going to work for me. And so renewables have a big, um, you know, like a kind of a hump to get over in terms of the infrastructural support, but also just in terms of the continuing subsidies to fossil fuels. So we need to look at those numbers, but, but um, all of the data I've suggested suggests that 
and this is a, like a lot of people think that renewable energy is extremely heavily subsidized because that's what they've heard from the fossil fuel industry. But actually, most of the studies that have done been done show far greater subsidies for fossil fuels. And so one of the things I argue, a market-based mechanism that conservatives, in my opinion, should be able to support is a really good place to start to accelerate the transition to renewable energy is to eliminate all subsidies for fossil fuels. And in fact, if you wanted to, you could actually eliminate all subsidies across the board because the fossil fuel subsidies are so much greater, they that means that the playing field is not level. And if renewables were able to compete on a level playing field, they would outcompete fossil fuels because in most places in the world, they're now cheaper. Um, so we could just get rid of all subsidies. And that is a solution that conservatives and free market folks ought to like. And so I invite them to join me in pushing for that as one part of the policy solution. Oh, let's, let's hope. Uh, I, want, I want to mention just one thing. You, you referenced electric vehicles. Now, I've long been sort of a fanboy of Tesla. Um, uncoupled from Elon Musk. And I, you know, we, we all have our opinions of him. He's an eccentric figure. Um, right. But I remember when the, the Roadster was first being developed and my father was showing, and this is sort of a fascination he and I shared. And I was exuberant uh, about the idea of this, this fancy, elegant car, you know, be eventually becoming mass marketed. And in time, in good time, it did. Uh, but I did not anticipate the mineral requirements. And that's, as somebody who, you know, I am as staunch an enthusiast of, of the environment as anyone. I, I absolutely adore nature and I respect it. Uh, but my view of electric vehicles and their future was, was um, clouded. And my enthusiasm was, I think, dampened with the knowledge that they are so mineral intensive and you know the way in which these mines are well created and operated it isn't exactly green so let me just ask honestly as someone who's, who's studied this and written about this for many years do you think that it it wasn't sufficiently considered how much um intensive mining would be required to create these batteries between the copper, the manganese, the lithium, the cobalt, all of these things that need to be mined and then transported and then refined. You know, there's a lot, yeah. a lot that goes into it. So do you think that maybe in the early exuberance of the, of the electric vehicle movement, let's say, do you think these things were overlooked? No, I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. So for many years, I, I've been asked the question, what car should I drive? Like when I, you know, when I give a public talk, I get lots of questions. And that's for many years, that was one of the most common questions. And the answer I always gave was the car you're driving right now. Yeah. Unless it's a Hummer, you should just keep driving the car you because the mineral demands and the energy demands for new stuff, whether it's a car, an iPhone, a computer, you know, whatever it is, these are very, very great. And this is why the best answer to all environmental questions is always use less. The problem is that a lot of Americans don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear the use less answer. And when you try to say that, you get accused by uh, the anti-environmentalists of wanting people to freeze in the dark. And when I was in the mining industry, that used to be a bumper sticker, right? Let the environmentalists freeze in the dark, right? So nobody wants people to freeze in the dark. Um, so it's a, tricky, it's a tricky messaging problem to say that the correct answer really is just keep using, driving your old car, drive it till it dies, um, and then get an electric car, right? Because the mineral demands 
are great across the board. Now, one thing that has happened though, and we've been tracking this, my research associate, Jeffrey Supran, has a new project tracking disinformation online. We can show that a lot of this stuff about how bad electric cars are is coming from the fossil fuel industry. Yes, we need lithium for electric batteries, but we need you know, iron and steel and carbon fibers and leather for seats for ordinary cars too, right? But you don't hear anybody telling you, oh, but regular cars use all this energy too, even though they do. So this is an example where, yes, of course, we all ought to be thinking hard about our consumption patterns. And this is where it gets back to like the core issues in, in our new book, The Big Myth, right? It really comes down to consumption. You know, this is a statistic that's been around for a long time, but it's still true. Americans represent about 4% of the world population, maybe even less now with the growth of India and China, but we consume about 25% of their resources. And that number has been pretty unchanged for a long time. So this kind of is about the American way of life, but frankly, most people don't want to talk about that. And so I think a lot of people who pushed electric cars did it in part because they felt there was a way to say, well, we can still have a good life, we can still travel, we can still drive. And up to a point, I agree with that. And I do support electric cars because Americans like to be mobile. One of the great things about America is to be able to get on the road. I mean, I just came back from driving across the country and it's pretty amazing to see this incredible country of ours, right? Um, you know, see the USA in your Chevrolet, right? I still remember that jingle from my childhood. So. People aren't wrong to want mobility. People aren't wrong to want to have cars. And we have an infrastructure that supports cars. So it's much more plausible to think about electrifying the automobile industry than it is to think about having a train system like they have in Europe, right? But the mineral demands are real, but they're real for all things. And that's where we get back to government, right? If I can bring this around, because how do we deal with the, the mining? Through appropriate regulation. I worked in the mining industry, and one of the things I used to always say, I worked for a company that had a very good reputation. It was considered to be one of the best mining companies in the world at that time. And what I will say about my company is we obeyed the law. <laughs> and other companies didn't. So we were good because we obeyed the law. So, so this gets into the questions of law, regulation, enforcement. So yes, we should be concerned about mining. We should be concerned about what's going on, about enforcing labor standards. And we should, you know, like the blood diamonds issue, if we have evidence, which we do, that some minerals are coming from countries that are, um, you know, have appalling labor standards or appalling environmental practices, then we should think about what enforcement mechanisms we have to fix that because we do. Um, and we have those tools at our disposal and we can use them. Having spent time in the mining industry and in academia, it's no question that you obviously are someone to whom we should be paying very close attention. And people have been for many years. Thank uh, you. Well, I so, know people are sometimes surprised. You know, there's always that that thing you do as an icebreaker, say, oh, tell people something surprising. I used to work for the mining industry. <laughs> people don't expect that. <laughs> So I just, now, now I'm just picturing you uh, next to Ben Stiller and Zoolander, you know, addressed <laughs> with, <laughs> with the soot on your face and all, all stylish in the in the minds. Now <laughs> we, we were very stylish. Those hard hats are very sexy. Yeah, very very attractive. <laughs> yeah, um, although one, will... one time a man in Colorado once told me there is nothing sexier than than a woman driving a truck. <laughs> I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Um, a truck with a with a hat on, with the hard hat. Well, now with, that and steel-toed boots. I have the whole nine yards going. Right and I am looking seriously at buying the new Ford Maverick. It comes in electric, so that might be that might be my new truck when my twenty-year-old car dies. Which it's so kind you of mentioned about. your twenty-year-old car. 20 -year -old. I like, 
I likewise have a 20 year old car and you want to talk about small solace. It's small solace (laughs) to a, to a 2004 Honda civic owner to know that, you know, he's being greener than his, his fancy um, motorist (laughs) accompanying him on the road. As I barely older than your car then. Well, I, I have, since we're talking cars, uh, 2000, uh, sorry, 1997 BMW Z3, one of the best cars ever built, but it is getting long in the tooth now and I may have to, I may have to move on. Anyway, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to reach out to you. Likewise, likewise. You've been so generous with your time. Um, we've, I've learned a lot. And again, I encourage everybody emphatically pick up the big myth. That's the most recent work by Professor Oreskes, um, along with your co-author, uh, Mr. Conway, and also The Merchants of Doubt. You can watch the documentary. Of course, that was critically acclaimed. And uh, between those two, there are many other publications. And as you mentioned, you are prolific in your in your writing, Scientific American, and I'm sure there are other venues as well. And those are all things to which I'll include links in the show notes below. Okay, thanks. And since so, we're doing shameless yes. plugs, here's the book. It is a big book. I have to admit, a big myth required a big book, but you don't have to read it all. It's written so you can like jump around the chapters, yeah. just read the action conclusion, or give it to your friends for the holidays, and they'll be really impressed at how smart and scholarly you are. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> if you really want to direct your uh, your wrath against um, Hayek, for example, just skip to the Hayek section. No, I'll do that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, I, I encourage everybody pick up uh, pick up a copy, give it a read, and uh, I think you'll be all all the more intelligent for it. So again, professor, thank you so very much, um, and I hope to talk to you in the future when your next book uh, on on law or some other very <laughs> some other field is is put forth into our hands. So again, yeah. thank you so very much, and I'm Daniel Finneran signing off from Finneran's Wake.